Well, if you have your Bible this morning, please go ahead and turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, because that's where we're going to be, finishing up a section that we've been in in this letter for the past several weeks, a section where Paul is writing to his friends in response to a letter he wrote them, asking what they should do about meat that had been sacrificed to an idol in a temple. That's right. He's writing to them about meat sacrificed to idols in a temple. Not exactly our time or our place. What we found, though, I think, is that the way Paul reasons with them is incredibly relevant for us because he's reasoned with them from the perspective of love for each other and of love for God and his promises. And that ultimately is something all of us are called to each and every day, to live not based on what we want to get out of our lives, but to live based on what we were made for, to glorify our Father and to love others unto him. And, and that's what we get to this morning. The passage we're going to look at this morning is really just sort of a summary of what Paul's been saying for the last several chapters. So you're going to hear some things that are pretty familiar. I want to come at it from a different angle, though. What I, the way I want to come at this passage is from the angle of what we were made for. Because this passage includes this one verse that all of us have probably heard before, many of you at least. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's one of these verses that gets put on plaques and hung on the wall because it sort of seems to, to capture the, the overall purpose for Christian living. And we want to unpack it and put it into its context so that you can see it even more clearly than maybe you did before now. It's about what we're made for. Now, those of you who know me <clears throat> know that I am I'm not exactly on the cutting edge of American popular culture. There are general ex- are exceptions to this rule. Um, one of the exceptions to this rule is my taste for a folk rock band called the Avid Brothers. I know who they are, and I like their music. <laughs> the Avid Brothers sort of had me when they used a banjo in their rock and roll. I mean, come on. They used banjo and cello. But really what I love most, probably alongside the sort of folksy melodies that they come up with, is they take their lyrics really seriously. And in a way that often I can understand. And usually I find that that modern popular music, either I can understand it and it's ridiculous, or I can't understand it at all, so it doesn't help me. And the Avett brothers are sort of playing in this middle ground where I think I can understand it a lot of the time, and it's also really interesting. Now, you wouldn't necessarily know that, that they're serious about their lyrics uh, from a quick scan of many of their track titles. They are, after all, the band that's brought us songs like Pretty Girl from Michigan, Pretty Girl from Raleigh, Pretty Girl from San Diego, and Pretty Girl at the Airport, among other songs on the theme of Pretty Girls. But one song in particular has one of the best summaries that I've heard of how I think our culture thinks about what it is to be free, about what it is to live a happy and fulfilled life. It's a song called Road Full of Promise, Head Full of Doubt. I think that's what it's called. And to be honest, most of these lyrics actually are pretty incomprehensible to me. I don't know what they're talking about. Except I can tell they're talking, at least playing in the, in the, in the ballpark of, of what it is to be free versus held, free to pursue the dreams that you have, what you want from your life versus being held back by your doubt of yourself or other people's doubt of you or what the culture tells you you should be. There's a lot of language like that in the song, even if it doesn't clearly make sense how it's put together. Uh, but the, one of the refrains in the song is... is is the image of breaking into this cage and setting this dream free like a free bird. 
one of the lines in it that's, it, 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 to me, it's just a great summary of what my sense is our culture believes it is to live a good and, and happy and free life. The line is this. Decide what to be and go be it. Decide what to be and go be it. If you can lock onto that, you can grab it and put that in as your life's sort of mantra, that your life will be free and meaningful. Now, whether that's what they're getting at or not, it seems to me that, that at the very least, it's, it's pointing to something that you can hear in a, lot of, in, a, in a lot of dialogue in our culture, that to live a, a free and happy life is to do away with doubts, insecurity, to live for the promise of what could be, to not just download from somebody else what you're supposed to be, right? Sort of write your own story. And what seems ironic to me is that, is that this attitude seems like the solution to guilt and failure. But in my mind at least, it has exactly the opposite effect. The idea that it's on my shoulders to figure out what, what my life should be. To sort of create a meaning that's worth living. That is a, that is a burden that I'm not prepared to carry. It seems like that sets me up for indecision. I mean, what's riding on this is my meaning in, as a person, and I've got to come up with that. I mean, how am I supposed to decide which track to go down with my life? It seems like it would freeze me. It would actually shackle me, not set me free. At the very least, it would set me up for failure because what happens if I decide, well, let's just make this actually concrete. If this actually worked, then I'd be suiting up to play first base for the Atlanta Braves in game number three of the National League Division Series tonight. But that dream crashed and burned at about 15 years old. I decided what to be. I wasn't able to be it. So it seems like if, if really all it is is about figuring out what you want to be with your life and then just going and doing it, that actually what you're setting yourself up for is a sort of shackle, a, a sort of shackles to, of, of indecision about how to make that call and then guilt and a sense of failure when you're not able to be what you think you ought to be, what you want to be. Well, whether I'm right or not about what they mean by their song, about what people sort of think in our culture, what I do know for a fact is that the Bible has a different take on what it is to be free, on what it is to live a happy, meaningful, full life. And it has everything to do not with figuring out what you're supposed to be about and then going to be it. It has everything to do with figuring out why you were made and aiming your life at the purpose that your maker gave you when he created you. The Bible doesn't see us as sort of accidents who then have to create some purpose for ourselves, but as beings shaped in the image of one who had a very concrete purpose for us. And the Bible presents what it is to be free as the ability to do what we were made to do. We're free in the sense that a train is free when it's on its rails, not when it decides it wants to go for a sail or ride down the interstate. The train is free when it stays to the rails it was made for. And that's the Bible's take on our freedom. And that's the, that's the picture that 1 Corinthians 10 gives us here in its summary of where Paul's been in talking about idol food. Because the issue that, that the Corinthians had brought up to him was about freedom. They're like, do, do we have the freedom to sort of do what we want with our lives now that Jesus has, has come for us? Or... Is it trouble if we eat this meat that was sacrificed at this temple, especially if we eat it at this temple? 
So Paul's trying to reset what they think they should be aiming for in their lives, what they think of as true freedom, and he's doing it in light of the main purpose for every person who's ever been born. What we're made for is the glory of God. And the question that we want to ask is, what does it look like to live our lives to the glory of God? If freedom is about figuring out why you were made and then living in light of what you were made to be, if that's freedom, if that's the good life, what is it to live to the glory of God? How can we do it? And, and his, this passage points us straight there. So if you found the passage, would you please stand with me now in honor of God's word? I'm going to read verses 23 uh, through the end of chapter 10 and then also the first verse of chapter 11. And this is the word of the Lord. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever's sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, This has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience, I don't mean your conscience, but his, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Now, I want to, what I want to do in this passage is pull out two different layers, two themes about what it would look like to live our lives to the glory of God. And they're this. To live for the glory of God is to live as one who loves what God gives for God's sake. That's in the, the middle section. And it would look like loving each other in God's strength. Loving what God gives for God's sake. Loving each other in God's strength. Now, let me, let me get into the details here. Paul, what he, what he brings back here in this passage is this sort of yes, but construction that he's gone to several times. This, different, uh, th- th- this way of arguing about what they think they know, but how they're not putting it into practice in the way that they should. Yeah, you're right, but you're still sort of missing the point. And in verses 25 and 27, he starts with the, the yes side. Like, this is where they're right. And he's going to actually give us a positive view of what it looks like to live in the freedom that Jesus' death has given for us, given to us. And it was a radical idea then. It's a radical idea, idea today. Now, now, first, I want to explain the details here because, uh, because they're not exactly, they're not immediately clear. What he says in verse 25 is that you can eat whatever is sold in a meat market. And this is a little bit of a shift from what we've been seeing in, er, in the earlier chapters. Because there he was talking more about actually eating meat, sacrificed to an idol, in the temple, with, his, with friends, say. Because the temples were kind of like uh, restaurants. They're like ancient restaurants. And you would go there to have a good meal. And it just happened to be that they would also sacrifice some of it and give it to the God to eat. And you hoped that by eating here in the presence of this God, you would get some sort of blessing from this God. This isn't that sort of meat. This is a little bit different. This is meat that's sold at a meat market. Now, here's the thing. Meat wasn't exactly uh, 
freely available at this time. It was a really a, a luxury. And so you didn't really have the freedom to just sacrifice a ton of meat over here at the temple and then still have plenty left over to sell in the market. So sometimes they sort of did double duty with their meat. You would sacrifice some of it, but not like burn it. You just sort of place it, but then go sell it afterwards to be eaten. And sometimes there'd be a marketplace kind of close by. They have these arrangements with the temples, and they would sell that meat. Now, it seems like from the way he talks about it here, that it's not like that's the only meat that would be sold there. It's just that some of the meat in the meat market would have been, would have been um, sacrificed before at a, at a temple. And here what Paul's saying is that you don't have to sweat it where that meat came from. It's like go to the meat market, buy it, don't ask any questions. Go home and eat it, for the earth is the Lord's and its fullness thereof. He's quoting from an, a table blessing that, that Jewish people used regularly as a way of thanking God for food, that all this food we're about to eat comes from him. The whole earth is his. So we're enjoying it only as an extension of what he's given to us, as, as a gift from him. And Paul's saying, you are free not to worry about whether or not that meat came from the temple. And what he's, I think what he's getting at is that the meat itself is not the problem. It's not like the temple has this sort of magical power that it puts on the meat, and if you eat it, you're going to get sick and die because it was at the temple. The meat isn't the problem. The temple's not really the problem. It's what the temple stands for. But if you're not at the temple eating there and perhaps looking like you're worshiping this God, go for it. Don't worry about turning over every rock. In fact, he continues, verse 27, if you go to an unbeliever's house for dinner and they want to serve you some meat, you know, a nice steak, just eat it. Don't ask any questions. It's not like you have to give them the business about where their meat came from, right? He's not telling them it's not an isolationist thing. This is about engaging people where they are. Go to them. Enjoy it. Make the most of it. Enjoy it out of thanksgiving. That's the point. As something that comes from God, as the giver of all good gifts. Relish it without fear. That's part of what it means to trust Him. So what he's saying here is that there's, the food itself is not the problem, so you can eat in freedom without even thinking about it. And I think this is what it means to eat and drink to the glory of God in verse 31. That when you eat this food, you eat it as something that came to you from him, and so it reminds you of God and all that he is. When you taste the delicious flavors of this, mood, of this food, it's not just about filling your stomach. It's about reminding you of the God who gave you the taste buds to taste it, who gave you the food to put into your mouth, who created this world that is full of good things for his children to enjoy. You eat to his glory as the God who gives it to you. God is glorified when we taste of the things of this world for his sake in that light as good gifts given to us. I think that's the, that's the main takeaway from this, the, the food section and what it means to eat and drink for his glory. It means to enjoy the things that this world offers as gifts from our Father who made us for our good as his children. It means to, to eat and drink and celebrate with friends. It means to enjoy the, the things that his creatures make, good music, good movies, good art. It means to, it means to enjoy walking uh, like my family did in Edwin Warner Park. It means to enjoy a Saturday morning in Edwin Warner Park to the glory of God because he gave you these gifts, right? We've been walking a sort of fine line in some of the last couple of weeks because we've been talking about the danger of living for what you crave, of sort of your desires leading you astray. And what you could take from what we've said the past couple of weeks is that is that giving in to your desires is always a bad thing. If you do what you want, if you do what gives you happiness or joy, then you're selling out or maybe worshiping that idol. And that is not the Bible's, the Bible's perspective on things. 
This world is full of things that were designed so that you could enjoy them fully. Your desires can be a gift of God that leads you to want Him more because you enjoy Him through what it is that He's made. I think that's the main takeaway from verse 31. There's another layer I want to, I want to add to it. Another, way, another thing that it means to glorify God by eating freely the things that he, has, that he has provided and made available to us. I think it means, I think it points us to the fact that God is glorified not when we're good enough for Him, but when we receive His goodness from Him. God is glorified in us when as a posture of our life, we live not to be good enough for Him, but we live as those who receive His goodness from Him. Here's another way to put it. Living to God's glory means engaging the things of this world in response to His gracious and loving care, not to earn His gracious and loving care. Basically, what 1 Corinthians has been pointing us back to over and over again is that the death of Jesus on the cross stands for us so that when God sees us, He sees Jesus' perfect record and not the sin that should require our death. Jesus standing for us as a substitute is something that changes what God sees when He sees us. And when He sees us in light of Jesus, when we are joined to Him by faith, what He sees is goodness, is righteousness, is His child approved once and for all. And what that means is we don't have to turn what we eat or don't eat into a way to earn God's favor. It means we're free to eat what we want to, when we want to, because God approves of us in Christ. Paul's saying that you don't need to check around about the origins of your food was radical in his day because there were groups like the Pharisees who were all about extra-level regulations. What they thought was that for us to get to the place where God's Messiah will come and establish his kingdom, we've got to get right. We've got to be more holy than we are now. And the way, they, the way they worked towards that was to come up with a whole system of laws based on what you could or couldn't do, always sort of ratcheting up the intensity of their, of their devotion, their obedience. And they had a whole set of food laws, not just the food laws that, that they could have found in the Old Testament, but laws about what to do to make sure you're not eating meat that might have been sacrificed to an idol. They lived in sort of a boycott culture, right? I remember I had a one, a one phase as a boycotter, as a kid, I was a part of a, of a group of churches that were boycotting Disney for reasons we won't go into. And I remember, you know, I was all on board at, at the beginning because I was, you know, a good kid. I did what I was told. Until I started realizing just how much Disney owns. Just how far their reach goes. Oh, wait a second. Disney owns ABC? So, no ABC? Disney owns ESPN? So, no college football no ESPN the magazine this was before ESPN.com it's in the late 90s magazine oh I see so we were constantly having to look to make sure I wasn't sort of breaking this boycott that I probably in my own self-righteousness was trying to present to God as a reason that God should love me look at how free I've kept myself from all of these associations with evil that's the Pharisees that's the way they were living And what Paul's saying here is, you don't have to worry about it. Don't sweat it. Just go eat the meat. Because what you eat or don't eat has nothing to do with what God thinks about you. He'd said that already in a couple chapters earlier. It's indifferent. It doesn't matter. So live in freedom. And one of the ways we glorify God as the God who is for us in Christ is not to sweat it 
not to go walk around just wondering, worrying that we're going to slip up and cost ourselves his love. Now, many of you I know know what it's like to have a father who treats you that way, who is always looking for you to slip up, looking to pounce at every opportunity. A father whose approval you have not been able to win no matter how hard you've tried. Let me tell you that this morning, God is not that kind of father. He is not looking under every rock waiting for you to slip. So go and enjoy the world he made for you with the knowledge that in Christ you are once and for all his child, beloved, approved, and accepted. That's the message. That's how our enjoying the things God has given us is a way of loving God and glorifying him as the one who has made us all we need to be in Jesus and has filled his world with good gifts for his children. Live to God's glory by loving, loving all things for God's sake. Now, now we change gears. Here's number two. We live to God's glory by loving each other in God's strength. And I would say that actually this is the main point of the passage we're looking at this morning. This is where all, most of the details come in. And there's a danger in enjoying God's gifts. All of us are in danger of loving God's gifts because our hearts are prone to idolatry, to making idols out of the things that he gives us. Romans 1 is one of my favorite passages about this, that, that they loved the creature more than the creator, right? Isn't that such a great way of, ex- of explaining where so much of our sin comes from? We love the things God has made more than we love the God who made them and gave them to us. So, especially when things are going well, we can think, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we're enjoying God and loving Him, when really we're just loving His gifts. I think this attitude where we love God's gifts more than we love Him shows itself every time we complain. Every time, no matter how small. Every time we complain about something. What we're saying is that God has not given us what we deserve. Or that if, if we were God, we would have done things differently. Every time we're showing we value something He's given us more than we actually value Him. Because we're never really saying God has not given us Himself anymore. How many of us have complained of that? We've got to be careful not to deceive ourselves and not to drift into loving the things God gives us for their own sake and not for His sake. And one of the best signs that our hearts truly love God and His gifts for His sake and not for our own sake, one of the best signs that our love is God-centered and not self-centered, is when we're able to do without any one of His gifts in love for each other. There is nothing that is not indifferent to the believer who is satisfied in Christ. There is not one thing in this world that we can't live without if we have Jesus. And that's what Paul's pointing us to in these verses. One of the best ways to glorify God as the one who satisfies in himself more than any of the gifts that he's given us is our willingness to set aside our right to enjoy one or more of his gifts as an opportunity of loving each other instead. That's what he's calling us to in this, in, in this passage. Remember, it's a yes-but argument. Yeah, you're right, you're free, but... You're coming at this from the wrong side. You're coming at this from the wrong side. That's what he goes to in verse 23, verse 24, picks up again in verse 28. 
Yeah, all things are lawful, right? Jesus has done everything necessary to make you acceptable to God. But not everything is helpful. You're not supposed to approach your life just what's permissible to you, but what would be helpful? Yes, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Love, love means seeking not your own good, to enjoy, to amass and sort of hoard as many of God's gifts as you possibly can and not let go of them because these are mine by right. But to be willing to do away with the gifts God has given you, to do without them if it means loving each other well. Verse 28 makes this concrete, gives us an example. So yeah, it's fine if you go to the meat market, buy some meat, cook it, eat it with your family, don't worry about it. But if you go over to somebody's house and they serve you some meat, and as they're serving it, they say to you, this meat was sacrificed to an idol. Well, then then you're not supposed to eat it. Then you should set it aside, even if it offends them. Why? Why would a person say something like that? It's hard to say. The text doesn't actually get to that very quickly. It says, if someone, it's not exactly sure who the someone might be. Uh, best argument that I read is that it's the same person he's talking about in verse 27. It's the unbeliever. One of the unbelievers invites you over. If they f- serve you meat and don't say anything about it, you just eat it. If they serve you meat, still talking about the same guy. If they serve you meat and they say, this came from a temple, it was sacrificed to an idol, then you should not eat it. And I think what he's getting at is the same thing he was getting at a couple chapters earlier when he said that what you've got to worry about by your eating of this meat that in itself is not, there's nothing wrong with it, what you're worried about is what you might communicate to the person who's watching you eat it. Now, if this person announces to you that it was sacrificed to an idol, chances are they think this food has religious significance. They think it's sacred. And so they probably think that if you eat it, you eat it as an extension of your devotion to or worship of this God that it was sacrificed to. That's probably how they're eating it. Maybe they're even bragging about it. Maybe they're even like, hey, look, you know, it's an added bonus tonight. We get to worship this God that this meat was sacrificed to. Isn't that awesome? Or maybe they knew that he was a Christian and they were trying to test him and see, you know, hey, do Christians worship other gods? Because that's what you'll be doing if you eat this meat. And Paul says in that case, not because of your conscience, you know there's nothing wrong with the meat, but because of the conscience of this person who thinks it's religiously significant, don't eat it. Even if you're starving for a good steak, don't eat it. Because ultimately, what you're driven by is not what you want. Not what even you're free to have and to enjoy. What you're driven by is what's going to be for the good of this person that you love. What is going to make it most likely that they will be saved? That's where Paul goes at the end of the passage. He wants to please everyone in everything he does. He's not seeking his own, exam, his own advantage, but that of many, so that they'll be saved. That's what he wants. And what really jumped out at me this week is that this, this passage is set up, I think, to say that not seeking your own good but seeking the good of your neighbor is, a, is equivalent to living your life, eating and drinking for the glory of God. It's in the structure of the passage. It starts out with a blanket statement, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Ends with a blanket statement. Whatever you do, whatever you do, here's your general principle. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So what's the connection there? It seems like to glorify God is to not seek your own, but to seek the good of others. How does that work? That's the question that really jumped out at me. Whether you eat or drink, what you're asking is not what am I free to do, but what is going to serve someone else. And when you do that, when you come at life looking for opportunities to serve the needs of other people, 
rather than to protect what's yours or prove yourself to someone, then what you're showing, first of all, is that you have an underlying satisfaction, an underlying security that isn't dependent on what you can be, what you can enjoy, what you can make of yourself. An underlying security or satisfaction that must come from somewhere that is much more valuable, much more to be treasured than the things you could enjoy in this life, than the things that could be yours by right. What you're pointing to when you're willing to set aside what's yours for the good of others is the Jesus who makes it possible for you to love when it's hard, for you to love when it costs you something. This is the letter that's building to 1 Corinthians 13. That, that's a letter, we're, that's a chapter we're going to spend a lot of time in together. 1 Corinthians 13. The love that bears no records of wrongs, right? The love that is patient and kind. The love that doesn't envy. The love that doesn't brag. The love that isn't about me, but that's about you. Now, where in the world do you get a power to love like that with people like the ones he's writing to? This church was messed up. They were constantly hurting each other. Where do you get the power to love these people with that kind of love? Well, only, the only way it works is if you've got some sort of underlying security or satisfaction in Christ and in what he has offered to you, that you are free to take what comes and to give away what you have without fear, without regret, and even with joy because of who you are in Christ. That's how our love for each other, this kind of love, the sacrificial, dying to yourself, seeking the advantage only of others, how that kind of love glorifies God as the one who makes it possible. The second way it glorifies him is that it gives a picture of what his love is like. You know, Paul closes this, this, this little section in verse, verse 1 of chapter 11. He says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He's already given us an, how he imitates Christ in chapter 9. How he doesn't really care about what's his by right. He just wants to give himself away so people can be saved. So they can trust in Jesus and believe in him. What he's talking about is that Christ himself came to earth not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That Christ himself did not consider his right to equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and humbled himself even to the point of death. This is the Christ that we live for. And living for this Christ means doing what he did. It means holding a mirror up to the way that God has loved us in Christ so that anyone who's looking at us is seeing a reflection of it. And that's how it glorifies him. It says, we couldn't love like this on our own, but this is what our God loves us. This is the way our God loves us. Look at it. Isn't it beautiful? It's to glorify him because imitation is the highest form of flattery. And that's what our lives are meant for. And I started this off by saying this passage is really about freedom as, as the way to be, or rather being who you were made to be as the way to freedom, is what freedom really looks like. And I think it's in these details that we see that playing out. Another way to come at the two things we've said, that we love God through the things he's given us, and we love each other as if we didn't need anything from each other, as if because Christ has sacrificed himself for us, we are free to give to each other, not only take. To love in this way is to glorify him. It's also, it's also to, to do the great commandment. Right? How did... How does the scripture over and over again summarize what we're to do with our lives? What we're for? The blanket category is the glory of God. But it gets more specific than that. 
What are you to be and to do? Well, it's summarized in this. Christ himself reminds us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and strength, and love each other as you love yourself. Paul's just hitting those same themes in this passage. Eat as a way of loving your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love each other, even if it means not eating what you want, as a way of loving your neighbor as yourself. Be who you were made to be. This week with some friends, I was reading uh, what's become one of my favorite Christian books of the 20th century, a book by a pastor for maybe 50, 60 years in London, a guy named John Stott. Uh, He wrote this book called Contemporary Christian, sort of his take on what it is to be a Christian in the modern world. One of the chapters is on freedom, what it is to be free. He has a great analogy uh, for, for the point I've been trying to make here, which is that we're free when we live as we were made to live, when we are who we were made to be. That's what freedom is. Not the freedom to decide what to be and go be it, but the freedom to be who you were made to be. Stott draws a helpful analogy for that with, a, with, with the, the, the idea that fish are made for water, right? So fish are only free in the context of water. So imagine you're a goldfish, and you're in one of those old goldfish bowls, not like a big tank with not lots of room to swim, but the bowls, and they're so cruel, aren't they? Those nasty little bowls, and they just swim around. That's it. So imagine you're one of these fish, and you're feeling constrained, like you're not free. And so you want to get out of that bowl. Now, if you jump out of the bowl, and you should happen to flop your way into a pond in the backyard, well, then you've increased your freedom. You're still in water, but you've got a lot more room to swim. But let's say you end up on the carpet. Well, then you're not free. You're dead. You're not free. You, your life is over. So Stott asks, if fish were made for water, what were human beings made for? I think we have to answer that if water is the element in which fish find their fishiness, then the element in which humans find their humanness is love. The relationships of love. It is in love that we find and fulfill ourselves. Moreover, the reason for this is not far to seek. It's that God is love in His essential being. So that when He made us in His own image... He gave us a capacity to love as He loves. It is not a random thing, therefore, that God's two great commandments are love to Him and love to each other. For this, this is our destiny. Living is loving. And without loving, we wither and die. What we were made for is to glorify God in whatever we do. The way to glorify God in whatever we do is to enjoy the things He gives us for His sake as a way of deepening our affection for Him and to prove our affection is ultimately for Him by our willingness to do without what we might otherwise want if it means loving neighbors, loving family, Loving each other. This is what we were made for. God help us.
Father, it sounds so simple, but it is not easy. That's something we've learned, all of us. And it didn't take long to learn it. And so, like we do each week, when we hear your word, what we want is to respond to it with the humility that loves it. But we know that's past our ability, that our hearts can't manage it unless you change what we love. And so our, our request of you today is to shape us into those who love like you love, to love as we were made to love. Help us, our Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.